0: Hello and welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Vitschdok and I'm a Wesley Fellow of Political Economy at the Forum. Uh, Today, I host PhD candidate Beatrice Magistro. She's a past Wesley Fellow and has published widely on the political effects of the European sovereign debt crisis, Brexit and increases in immigration to Europe, as well as most recently on COVID-19. Hello, Beatrice.
1: Hi, Nicholas. Thank you for having me here.
0: You're very welcome. We're happy to have you. Also with me is Professor Victor Minaldo. He's Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. Victor has published extensively on a diverse set of topics that include political and economic development and innovation. Hello, Victor.
2: Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. And hi, Beatrice. Good to see you again.
0: Good to have you both. Um, today, we will discuss the ongoing challenge of populist movements to liberal democracy and we will be specifically interrogating the economic effects of populist politics. And finally, we wanna give listeners an outlook on whether COVID-19 is triggering a new wave of populism. Beatrice and Victor, you recently published a newsletter to the comparative politics section of the American Political Science Association entitled Populism, a Tale of Political and Economic Catastrophe. Beatrice, what is the main argument that you advance in this piece?
1: So in this newsletter, we investigate the relationship between crisis, both economic and political, and populism. And while until a few decades ago, populism was almost entirely the domain of Latin Americanists, in the few years, populism made its appearance in Europe and the U.S. And so what we argue is that regardless of the different forms of populism, so both right wing and left wing, in the end, the economic policies that, po- that um populists pursue tend to converge on a single model, which is based on protectionism, crony capitalism, rent-seeking, even though they have different in-groups and out-groups that we will be talking about um, shortly. So while they claim to benefit, while populists claim to benefit a certain group of insiders, beat natives in right-wing populism, or the poor, if we think about the more inclusive types of populism of Latin America, for instance, these policies actually all end up hurting the majority of citizens while only benefiting a small group of elites who are shielded from the negative effects through clientelism or other sorts of favors. And we provide evidence from different places in different time periods. So from Argentina to Chile to Greece and Italy. And we argue that populism almost always threatens liberal democracy and welfare state capitalism while ushering an economic collapse. And this is due to its nature of seeing economic interactions as zero sum rather than as win-win situations. We then finally speculate about what might be in store uh, for European politics after COVID-19.
0: Could you characterize populism and specifically the kind of policies that you describe as economic populism in a little bit more detail?
1: Sure. So what we mean by populism is is roughly the idea that institutions behind liberal democracy and welfare state capitalism and, and the experts behind them who help them function should be ignored in favor of the will of the people. And so we use this ideational definition that sees on the one side the pure people and on the other side the corrupt elites and the pure people are usually represented by a charismatic leader. And and this definition, I would say that the opposite of this definition is pluralism and the diversity of different interests represented in a liberal democracy and the idea of compromise. And some current examples of this type of populism that I just defined could be Venezuela or Turkey, um, Hungary or Poland or the US under President Trump. So roughly this is how we define populism, but how about economic populism seen as zero-sum thinking, which I I just talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the key ideas that we have in this newsletter, in this article, is that populists do not see economic interactions as win-win situations, as it is the traditional economic perspective, but instead they are obsessed with the zero-sum thinking and win-lose situations, right? So where you have an in-group that is losing and an out-group that is gaining at their expense. So you can think about immigration, right, and the way that it is is often portrayed by, by right-wing populism in which for every every immigrant that you get steals a job from a native and trade is seen in a very similar way. And also populists usually reject trade-offs and cost and benefit analysis and future consequences. They usually have, have are very short-termist, right? They have very high discount rates. And so, different populists stigmatize different out groups. Usually, right-wing populism stigmatizes um, foreigners, and you can usually left-wing populism stigmatizes. Um, I don't know; it could be U.S. imperialism, or in the case of Greece, it was actually the Troika, the European institutions. But what these policies usually have in common, no matter whether they come from the left or the right, is that they usually harm the, the groups that they claim to champion, especially the poor. And so. But what are usually these policies in general? What are these populist policies, these economic policies that they pursue? So usually uh, these policies are aimed at attaining quick results based on distortions in the economy and redistribution. So they're often characterized by expropriation of wealth from, from the rich, from corporations, from banks. And they're usually characterized by trade protectionism and by picking winners and losers, right? And then they, they tend to share rents with insiders, but at the expense of consumers and taxpayers. They often use regulations to, to punish outsiders and to help friends avoid them. And then they often end up spending public money generously without raising taxes, and then resorting to printing money to address budget deficits. But what are um, the consequences of, the, of these policies? Well, many times, as we will see when we analyze different cases, the consequences are balance payment problems, budget deficits and debt problems, hyperinflation, financial crisis and recessions, and then also coups.
0: Victor, let me ask you, could you give us some insight into why policymakers would pursue policies like that, that clearly, or at least you argue, the evidence seemed to show that actually um, harm the very people that they are intended to help, but at the very least seem to be hurting the, the economy as a whole and the countries they're implemented within?
2: Well, Nick, there are several reasons. Um, it's hard to know what's in anybody's heart or in their mind. One possible answer is because they are myopic and they're not thinking about the future. And so they are thinking about short-term benefits or quick results. And so therefore, because they discount the future heavily, they do things that distort the economy or that have costs that are borne by themselves or others further down the road. These policies might not necessarily be not thought through carefully. Uh, They might actually be explicitly geared towards distorting the economy despite adverse effects, in order to generate profits and revenues that can be shared with insiders, with uh, folks that are part of that uh, political uh, group that includes incumbents and business interests and some citizens. But those are two ways of thinking about it. One is thoughtlessness or impatience. And another is a very deliberate mechanism by which you generate the type of uh, money you need to stay in power and to benefit your allies. And and they're not mutually exclusive either. Beatrice intimated the first type might feed into the second type when she discussed the zero-sum aspect of populism and she might speak a little bit more about that. You can take what Beatrice said about zero-sum interactions and think about what's happening to the mechanics of businesses, of banks, of markets, when those policies are adopted, zero-sum policies and policies that steeply discount the adverse consequences that she mentioned. What exactly is happening under the hood? And what's happening usually is that populists are picking winners and losers, but uh, they're intending to benefit winners. And they're doing that by, let's say, imposing tariffs on trade, uh, on imports. And the reason you would do that on imports is to benefit inefficient producers in your country, domestic producers, that could not compete internationally, that could not compete with the imports coming in and, and are let alone export uh, any surplus to international markets, but for the import tariffs, uh, because their cost structures are much more expensive. And so that's a way to pick a winner. You pick a winner by sheltering them. And that allows a company that doesn't have to compete with imports to, let's say, charge much higher prices on the domestically produced goods. And so they can stay in business and they can produce high uh, priced goods that a lot of folks are priced out of at home uh, that they otherwise uh, were purchasing earlier before let's say imports or that they could purchase without the imports, but they're priced out.
0: Victor, one argument you would hear, I think, from uh, populist policymakers would be to say, or, or for people who argue in favor of these kinds of uh, policies would be to say, you know, like one duty of the, the national government in its economic policy making is primarily to its own citizens, right? So, say, dollars that are being um, generated by manufacturers from foreign countries, when they do trade, say, within the US, that's not quite the same thing as um, the same money being generated by a domestic firm, right? So that somehow justifies trade policy to be biased in in a way that you described earlier, that would benefit domestic producers over foreign producers. What's the problem with that?
2: Well, the problem is that the costs fall on consumers. So you're choosing some producers over others. But in doing that, in fact, you're also hurting some of your potential producers that might actually, let's say, maybe be cost competitive and could enter the market, but because the tariffs are there, they're artificially depressing their incentives to enter the market and let's say innovate. Because why do that when you can just rely on tariffs and charge much higher prices for the domestically produced goods? So in fact, it it benefits some producers, but it might hurt producers we never get to meet And it definitely hurts consumers because, as I said before, many are priced out of the market and they uh, will not buy the domestically uh, produced goods at a steeper price. And the folks that do buy the goods at a higher price, well, in a market where the imports were coming in, they would have access to the same goods at a lower price. So they're paying a higher price than they otherwise would have to. So there's absolutely no question consumers are being harmed, but it could also be producers that are being harmed. And the last thing I'll say is one of the major conduits of innovation in the world, mostly the developing world, but also the developed world is trade because trade introduces new processes and new products and therefore is a transmission mechanism for innovation and because innovation is the source of prosperity the the greatest source of prosperity you're depriving the future society you're depriving your children you're you're even depriving yourself in the future from maybe enjoying the bounty of innovation because you've cut off one of the chief ways in which innovation enters the country and that would be trade another is foreign direct investment and another is through foreigners being able to gain property rights over their ideas, let's say, by getting a patent protected and respected, let's say. But trade is incredibly important on its own in terms of introducing new ways of doing things. The Chinese economy, for example, was famous in the 80s and 90s of being the beneficiary of technology transfer from Western countries because it was open to trade. Uh, and a lot of companies decided to move to China and produce in China to be able to exploit their lower costs so they could trade with the rest of the world at a comparative advantage. But by doing that, they were introduced, uh, the Chinese were, and Chinese uh, producers that were in the supply chains of some of these multinationals, and Chinese workers, and a whole host of other uh, uh, players in the Chinese uh, economy were introduced to that new technology. And so those are the losers, and therefore, what you said doesn't make much sense if you want to benefit, let's say consumers today, if you want to benefit consumers tomorrow, if you want to benefit wage laborers whose um, wage is a function of their productivity and therefore technology and innovation, if you want to benefit producers that might not necessarily exist.
0: Let me ask one question. Is there also a political motivation to the idea of creating import barriers, for example, to favor certain producers on the side of the policymaker. What I'm really asking is, aren't you making people economically dependent on remaining on your uh, good side as the policymaker, if you're shielding them from imports?
2: Absolutely. There are several reasons to do that. You create someone that's beholden to you, as you just mentioned. So the producers rely on the tariffs rather than an educated workforce or technology or just a lower cost structure. Another benefit is that you can generate profits through sheltering some of these domestic producers from the competition of imports. And when you do something like that, the profits might also flow to the politicians. Uh, You're constraining supply uh, and raising price and and generating what are called rents uh, above your costs, Uh, and those are profits, and therefore, politicians like that, you can kick some of the profits back to them. And another thing is that you might be able to generate government revenues more easily, Uh Uh, and the reason for that is that it's easier to tax monopoly profits than it is to tax, let's say, firms, uh, many firms operating in a decentralized fashion. Or if you have a vertically integrated firm that has a monopoly, it's much easier to tax a vertically integrated firm, perhaps, uh, and some of these political systems we'll discuss than it is a vertically disintegrated supply chain where you've got to tax several different companies up and down the supply chain. So imagine a monopoly with vertical monopoly and distribution monopoly. So up the supply chain, down the supply chain, you tax one firm. And if it's a monopoly, you're taxing its profits. And the final reason is that you can probably protect wage laborers in the industry that is enjoying tariffs. And by doing that, you're able to create a coalition of uh, wage laborers, uh, perhaps unionized, perhaps not, that are able to command pretty high uh, wages. And so therefore, they're pretty pleased as well.
0: There might be a situation in which um, this kind of sheltering from imports creates diffuse hardship within the economy, yeah. but some pockets of, of industrial sectors that actually do really well and yes. certain workers that are rewarded very handsomely within this regime. So for, for those, obviously, this, uh, the system is working great, right? So maybe uh, look, looking at aggregates or, or, or averages, rather, um, distorts the fact that this economy is actually working quite well for, for, for key, key actors within this uh, political system.
2: Right. But then we'd have to return what Beatrice said about the consequences of populism. Right. If we're going to state that, we have to think about the macroeconomic consequences and who gets hurt in terms of the whole society. Now, I mentioned some microeconomic consequences and I could do more of that, but let's just quickly go to the macroeconomic consequences. And Beatrice mentioned several, balance of payments problems, budget deficits and debt problems, hyperinflation, financial crises and recessions. All of these eventually hit the economy pretty hard because these are unsustainable policies. And so therefore, even if it's working in the short run, over the long run, it doesn't work. And you can point to several examples, Beatrice will point to one, I'll point to Argentina.
0: I think it's easy to think that people are, like, as you alluded to earlier, right, that people are myopic, that people are ignorant, that these policymakers don't understand what they're doing, that this is somehow the result of, of, of ignorance. But I think you could also make the case, and I feel like you're implicitly making it, that this might be very calculated. Sure, this might create certain issues, but it creates issues for people we don't care about or that don't matter. You know, for, for our political system, because it does work for the key groups that keep us in power, right? So, so those are the only people
2: we care about. Um What, what do you mean, we? You mean the policymakers that are doing the policy?
0: It. Not, not, not me personally, or, or us. But <laughs> yeah. Rather, like if you were talking through, like if, if I'm Peron, for example, right? I don't, I don't care about large parts of this country, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if, mm-hmm. it, if it's only about me remaining in power, they're very key groups that I need to pay off
2: so I I think it's okay not to go down that road only because it could both things could be true it could be that you're my yeah yeah, and we kind of already hinted at that I mean that could get into Beatrice's research in fact like why do like if citizens support this then it isn't necessarily because of my rent uh, rent seeking uh, racket or it could be both it's citizens mm-hmm. driving it, and and politicians who are like, let's exploit the citizens, how gullible they are, and generate rents. Say, well, they keep pursuing
1: policies that do not lead to economic growth, because if they grew the pie, then they would have to share it more widely, or like this would create more losers, maybe including themselves. So it could be extremely rational for whoever is in power to pursue these welfare reducing policies, and then. It could be that the citizens don't know about them, could be that they are misled into believing that they are good policies, or for some reason, maybe they are part of the winner group and
0: and they are supporting them because it's making them better off. Trade protectionism is one policy, but how would something like a price control on specific goods that might be especially... Um, demanded by the the common citizen or the common people or uh, the pure people that populists purport to represent, how could uh, a policy like that possibly hurt them in the way that Beatrice um, argued earlier?
2: I'll let Beatrice speak to price floors, and I will speak to price ceilings. When you set an artificially low price on something, let's call this, I don't know, bread, or we could call it Housing, if we think about rent control, when you do something like that, what happens with an upward sloping supply curve? That means that the marginal cost is increasing as a function of quantity.
0: Can you say that again for listeners?
2: An upward sloping supply curve means that the marginal costs faced by firms or faced by anyone producing units increases as a function of a greater amount of units produced. Okay, if we're talking about homes for each additional home the the cost of the next home is more than the cost of the previous home let's say right for someone producing homes and selling homes let's say for people to live in right when that is the case and, and a lot of markets behave this way with upward sloping supply curves uh, with increasing marginal cost as a function of increasing units when this happens If you set an artificially low price on something, you're going to ration the quantity of that thing. And the reason is because many of the producers that were in the market beforehand are priced out. The producers have costs that are now above the new price, which is a price imposed by the government, a price control. For example, rent control would be to we have a maximum price on on rent that people pay to live somewhere. And when you do that, there's a bunch of homes that can are not produced. Does that make sense? Or or folks, let's say, that have high maintenance costs of their rental units um, that aren't able to make the um, returns that they require to run the unit any longer.
0: So when I'm Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro in, in Venezuela and I say that my citizens really should have access to enough bread or to enough uh, meat. For example, so I say it's 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 illegal to charge more than five dollars per unit of food, for example. Why would that lead to less food being supplied?
2: Because a lot of the firms supplying the food, let's say the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, so you could I guess eat the food at candlelight because electricity was very sporadic if not non-existent in Venezuela under Chavez and then following Maduro. Those producers are priced out in that their costs are too high. And their costs are too high because the price is artificially low. It's below their costs. So they can't make up a return that allows them to keep producing. Does that make sense, Nick?
0: Completely, yes.
2: I could tell you that it gets worse. Nick, these price controls get worse. Because not only are a lot of producers shut out of the market, black markets start to form. And the reason for black markets is that there are folks that are willing to pay a higher price than the very low price that is imposed through the price controls. And because they're willing to pay that high price, if you've rationed the quantity by imposing price controls, and you know that people are willing to pay a higher price, let's say for food or medicine on the black market, then you might find a way to, let's say, hog up that ration quantity, you might find a way to hoard that and then resell it on the black market at a steep markup. Because remember, with a ration quantity, you can find a way to resell to the folks that are willing to pay a higher price, not only higher than the new price-controlled price, but higher than the competitive price as well. So that opens up space for a black market and for massive profits on that black market for those uh people that are arbitraging fancy word for marking up okay, okay cool uh, okay so and now if Beatrice you know, wants to talk about the price ceilings um perfect or the price floors the price floor sorry price floor
1: Victor introduced price ceilings uh which are maximum prices um and I'm just gonna say a few things about price floors also called uh price supports uh, which are minimum prices you can think of examples like producers of soybean or steel Asking the government to set a minimum price so that they can that it covers at least their cost of production and so that they're shielded from international competition. And so this measure is actually set to protect to 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 benefit producers, but at a large cost to the rest of society, uh, especially to consumers. And then there are different types of price floors, price supports, because in in the easiest scenario. Actually, producers can adjust their production so that it actually meets the lower demand of consumers at the highest at the higher price. and then you have a debt weight loss. But you can also have scenarios in which the government actually decides to not only set a minimum price but also to buy the excess supply, right? Because you are in a situation in which with the new minimum price since it's higher, then the competitive price consumers are are going to want to buy less of that product, but producers are going to want to sell more to produce more of that product. And so what the government does, it buys the excess supply. And this is actually an extra cost to society because it's paid out by taxpayers.
0: So these are some of the mechanisms of how populist economic policy goes awry or creates certain adverse economic outcomes. Um can we make this a little bit more tangible? Do you have any like practical or um empirical examples of this of these dynamics playing out?
2: Well, one of my favorite cases to point to, not favorite because I approve of it, but favorite because it really helps illustrate some of this stuff, would be the case of Argentina over the second half of the 20th century and continuing into the 21st half. And Argentina is a case where populism was consolidated and institutionalized first by a charismatic strongman that was elected, but then was able to rig the political system to consolidate power in his uh, hands. His name was Juan Perón uh, in 1950, in in the uh, early 1950s. In fact, starting in the late 1940s, but really the height of his rule was the uh, 1950s, the early 1950s. And he was able to change the... uh, Argentine institutions, the political culture, the political parties, in the basis of political competition, to such a degree that populism became the dominant political economic framework in Argentina after uh, he lost power. Kind of the, the fears of Trumpism today. Will Trumpism replace Trump? Is there a movement? Are there organizations. Is there a political party that will inherit the mantle of some of the myopic policies, some of the policies that distort the economy to benefit friends? And uh, on the political side, what Beatrice mentioned earlier, the zero-sum stuff about xenophobia against immigrants, nativism, scapegoating minorities, and the like, right? But uh, just when it comes to the economy, we can think about Juan Perón uh, really setting the stage for that in Argentina. So, He rose to power, as I said, during the 40s and 50s and gutted democratic institutions. And he was able to put together an urban coalition that included domestic industrialists and unionized workers focused on the formal sector and focused on manufacturing, most of them in import competing uh, sectors of the domestic economy. Argentina is a country that, since its founding, was really based on, let's say, staple agriculture, commodity cash crops soy is the big one now but wheat would be another one um from the past and that still endures or before that and and what continues is cattle exports that this was a new coalition uh, it, the country was becoming more urban and so it made some political sense to do this and uh there was a real hunger in urban areas for higher wages so this makes total sense who doesn't want higher wages but he took a shortcut in that he boosted uh, real wages for unionized workers, both skilled and unskilled, by 35 percent in about five years. But it came at the cost of severely distorting labor markets, uh, uh, making it very expensive for companies to continue in business and having adverse macroeconomic effects. So uh, rather than a shortcut, usually the way wages are can be raised is through increased productivity for the workforce through education, through skills, through technology and things like that. But Perón took the shortcut and accompanying that were subsidies to industry and a lot of protectionism, both in terms of tariffs, but also channeling credit, let's say at very cheap interest rates to industrial conglomerates or other friends of the regime, public sector hiring for the public bureaucracy and for the government, and also just outright transfers to labor unions from the public purse or transfers from consumers to labor unions because there were very expensive products due to trade tariffs and monopolies. Now, again, labor unions uh, are part of a pluralist democratic system. There's no question about that. But in this case, it was labor unions, a very small sliver of the workforce against the interest of most laborers in Argentina and against consumers and a lot of producers and against the treasury of the, of, of the country because it had such an adverse economic effect. So this isn't to say that the intention was not noble, it was a very good one, but the means by which it was pursued was not very good at all because it ended up hurting workers in the long run. Argentina has lost its position in terms of prosperity, in terms of its high uh, standard of living over the 20th century and the early 21st in a large degree due to populism and due to the consequences we mentioned earlier of these um, policies. Another thing that uh, Perón did is he demonized the foreign direct investment in foreign companies, multinationals. He made it really hard on agricultural exports, which was, again, as I said, the lifeblood of the Argentine economy and the treasury before Perón. He made it very difficult on the uh, balance of payments and on the macroeconomic health of the country because of a very overvalued exchange rate which was used to pay for, let's say, some of the inputs by the domestically protected manufacturers that went into the domestic manufacturing process. And he was forced, the the country was forced, both during his tenure and afterwards, to uh, adopt policies that harmed the economy, like devaluing those overvalued exchange rates, defaulting on sovereign debt, and printing money to pay for budget deficits that nurtured hyperinflation that still to a large degree continues in Argentina today. He himself was exiled to Spain in 1955. There was a coup by the military because he had so polarized the country, not only politically by, let's say, taking over the political scene, by changing the Constitution, by installing judges that were friendly, packing the courts, and finding a way to have his political party dominate the political scene in the legislature, but also uh, in civil society by antagonizing certain groups like professors, like the free press, like churches or nonprofits that didn't go along with him. And so, uh, and the military itself was very dissatisfied, as were landholders, uh, the rural element uh, that was a fixture of Argentine politics, as we said, was excluded from this uh, coalition. And so there was a coup, but the Peronism continued after he was gone in terms of trade protectionism, in terms of the inefficient and distortionary allocation of credit to domestic manufacturers, in terms of privileging a few. Unions at the expense of most workers that were in the informal sector or in non-unionized positions, and at the expense of the balance sheet of the country in terms of very high inflation, very high debt, many sovereign debt defaults, devaluations, and recessions that followed in his way.
0: Argentina is the maybe one of the archetypical examples of populism and sort of adverse effects of uh, populist policies. But as you said earlier, Beatrice, populism was for a long time associated with Latin American studies. But as you said, populism has become a much more global phenomenon in, say, the last 10, 15 years. What exactly has been the cause of that?
1: We also discuss in our article basically the new wave of populism, specifically in Europe. And we identify two crises as the main causes of this new wave, and these two crises were the Eurozone crisis that started in late 2009 and early 2010, and then the refugee crisis that started in the summer of 2015. To make it brief, the Eurozone crisis started in late 2009, when Greece actually revealed to the world that they had lied about their public deficit for years. Um, so it was soon unable to service its debt. It's the beginning of the eurozone crisis. And this crisis is actually the result of a whole bunch of factors. So it's not just Greece as it's often portrayed in the media. It's actually the result of a lot of structural problems and competitiveness differences among EU countries. There is a part of it due to fiscal misbehavior And this is also in large part the result of the 2008 global financial crisis. What matters is that there are certain countries that were hit a lot harder by the crisis. And these were the countries in the periphery of of the EU. So the southern countries, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, and Ireland. I'm not going to get into the reasons why they were hit harder. I mean, there were major micro... Macroeconomic divergences between the North and the South. And these were amplified when the Southern countries joined the Eurozone. But only the Greek crisis was actually a true sovereign debt crisis. And in part, Italy, actually, the others started out as private debt crisis when the government saved the banks, and then they became public debt crisis. But what all these different cases had in common was actually the solutions to the crisis. So what happened was that in 2010, Greece, Portugal, and Ireland entered bailouts from the so-called Troika, which was the European Commission, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Central Bank that gave them aid based on conditional austerity measures and structural reforms. And while these three countries entered formal bailouts from the Troika, Spain and Italy were subject to a more implicit type of, of conditionality from the European Central Bank that basically committed to buying government bonds on the secondary market in exchange for also a package of structural reforms and austerity measures. So what happened is that these created divide between creditor states in north in Northern Europe and debtor states in Southern Europe. And we know that this Eurozone crisis and the measures that were taken in response to it, so the structural reforms and the austerity measures actually caused the crisis also in in trust in institutions. And, and we see that there, there was actually a divergence in trust in institutions that happened in the aftermath of the years on crisis, with fall in trust being a lot more steep in southern countries versus northern countries. And what we also know is that they not only experienced much larger drops in trust in institutions, both European and national, but also this fall in trust seems seem to be associated to the rise of populist parties. So higher distrust for European integration and in political institutions is actually associated with a higher probability of voting for a populist part, party beat. Uh, right wing or left wing, and so after the eurozone crisis, we actually see the rise of a bunch of populist parties, um, especially along the north-south divide. So we see the rise of Syriza on the left in in Greece and Golden Dawn in on the right, and we see the rise of the Five Star Movement in Italy and also the, the Lega. When the eurozone crisis was not even over, you actually see the refugee crisis beginning. So it's it's late two thousand and fourteen, early two thousand and fifteen. Um, the war in Syria is worsening, and so there are, there are an, there is an increasing number of asylum seekers and economic migrants that actually arrive to the EU, both across sea or overland. And especially the countries at the border, including Greece and Italy, struggle to handle this sudden um, influx of migrants. There wasn't like a very managed response at the EU level, so they proposed a new quota system which in the end didn't work. So they're still now doing like bilateral agreements between countries. And so rifts emerged between countries because certain countries didn't want to take certain number of refugees. And so here the divide was mostly between the West of the Western EU. And Eastern EU, so uh, Hungary and Poland, for instance, were were two of the countries that didn't want to take in any any refugees. And so we also know from a lot of the literature that, uh, as recent studies suggest, that refugee allocation actually affected voting behavior for far right parties.
0: Could you go uh, into a little bit more depth on one of the examples from of of left wing and one of uh, one example of right wing populism in the EU context?
1: Sure. So the the first case of of Populism in in the EU in the aftermath of of the eurozone crisis is actually a case of left wing populism in Greece. And so, as I was mentioning before, here we're talking Greece is the the first country that actually experiences uh, the largest effect of the eurozone crisis. It's a country that is is going through a bunch of structural problems, including it has a large public expenditure financed with debt it has big problems with corruption, it has a large shadow economy, problems with clientelism, excessive regulations and very closed markets. And then in 2009, we find out that its budget deficits actually exceeds 15% of GDP way above the 3% that is required by EU law. So suddenly financial markets start to reassessing sovereign credit risks and they start doubting Greece's ability to pay back its debt. And so in 2010 and 2012, Greece enters bailouts from the Troika conditional on passing austerity measures and structural reforms. And in 2015, when they vote on elections, the Greek people are actually quite mad and angry and disillusioned about the economic situation in their country. So they actually elect an outsider. They elect um, Alexis Tsipras from the far left Syriza party on an anti-austerity platform. So his program is actually to keep uh, Greece in the euro, but to basically leave behind austerity policies. And he has plans to nationalize banks, to stop privatizations, to increase public jobs, and all of these while not increasing taxes. However, in June 2015, when it's time to renegotiate the bailouts with the Troika, actually, Cyprus calls a referendum on the bailout terms. And this sends a signal to the EU that they can't trust Greece anymore because it's the first time that actually something like this is put up to a referendum. So this starts game of chicken between Greece and the rest of the European Union, right? In which what both sides want to avoid is Brexit. So Greece leaving the Eurozone because that would be the worst possible outcome for everyone. And in which Greece wants to basically stop austerity and get some debt relief while the rest of the EU wants austerity to continue and no debt relief. And what happens is that eventually it's Greece that has to serve after announcing the referendum because Greece has to institute capital controls. So it forces people to live under capital controls. It, It prolongs an economic crisis. And what happens is that also the surplus that the country had accumulated in the first two trimesters of the year of 2015 are by now gone. So Tsukras suddenly realizes that if he leaves the Eurozone, he's also going to have to implement um, harsh austerity. So he understands he has no option but um, to renegotiate the deal with the Troika. And what he negotiates is actually a worse outcome than the one he called the referendum. Over um and so the eventual result is actually still austerity and no debt relief at all, and he pays the price of 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 making Greeks live under capital controls of prolonging the economic crisis and of not getting the deal that he promised he would get. In fact, Greece ends its populist experiment in May two thousand and nineteen when he loses the elections to Mitsotaki's uh, the new democracy's center right leader and this is the end of Greece's populist chapter on the other hand i'm also going to talk a little bit about an example of right-wing populism in the eu and that's and that's the case of italy so for the case of italy actually its encounter with populism didn't really happen after the years on crisis because italy i think had the earliest experiment with populism um before the years on crisis which which was silvia berlusconi who was in power from 1994 to 2011 on and off uh, He was actually uh, appointed prime minister three times in in that period. And he was popular for claiming to be the authentic voice of ordinary Italians that were struggling with high taxes and bureaucracy. And he promised that he would bring his talents as his business skills to run in the nation. But what happened in those years is that after joining the euro in in 2000, um, low interest rates on, on government debt actually reduced the pressure on Italy for badly needed structural reforms to adapt to the challenges of of globalization and of population aging. And what happened is that in this period, actually, the Berlusconi government's um, years were characterized by reform inertia, in which they didn't pass any of these reforms. And so this left Italy very vulnerable to external shocks. And then the Eurozone crisis came, and in 2011, there was a fall of sovereign debt credibility for Italy, as its debt was reaching 130% of GDP, growth prospects were very low, and and they were at a policy stalemate in which Berlusconi was not really acting and was not passing the policies that the international financial markets and the ECB were requiring. So eventually, under the pressure of both financial markets and the EU, Berlusconi resigned and Mario Monti was appointed as, as head of the technocratic government. What happens then is that the technocratic government passes a bunch of austerity measures that save Italy from entering a formal agreement with the Troika, so with the IMF and the EU. And then what happens after is interesting because actually initially in 2013, when Italians go back to the ballot box, they don't elect, they don't vote for populist parties, uh, or at least not for a majority. And actually it's, the result is there is no majority, but the two mainstream parties, the center-right and the center-left, are able to form a grand coalition. And which is led by the Democratic Party, which is for its the majority of its of the time led by Matteo Renzi. Um, so we don't actually go back to populism after a technocratic government, as many would have expected, even though we see the rise at this time of the five-star movement. And it's actually in 2018 when people are dissatisfied of both, like all the austerity years during the technocratic government, but also by, by the inability of the Democratic Party to really uh, start to, you know, put Italy back, back, back on track after the, the economic crisis, it's actually in 2018 that they vote in large majorities for uh, populist parties. And we see the rise of the Five Star Movement for the first time in government, which is like the most emblematic example of populism. Like they define themselves as populist, like they're proudly populist. And then the Lega, who makes a resurgence and resurgence gets much higher percentages of the vote than they ever got before, and they actually form a coalition government based on a populist agenda with proposals aiming to reintroduce early retirement, which they did, deport migrants, institute a guaranteed minimum income that they did, while at the same time, while, while doing all of these passing tax tax cuts, in particular, a flat tax, and all of these while being euroskeptic, um, both of them. Eventually, this doesn't end well because Salvini calls for early elections. And actually, at that point, the president of the republic asks the Democratic Party if they want to form a government with the five-star movement, which they do. So they form a new coalition and Salvini is left out, is left in the minority. But I would say that this is not the end of populism because... The Five Star Movement is still in government and Salvini is polling at around 30%. So if we went back to voting right now, they would still be the most highly voted parties.
0: Thank you, Beatrice. I think this is really a great summary of the state of populism in, in, in several different European countries. But the United States has not been a stranger to populist politics either. President Trump has been maybe most famous for his political populism. But what are some of the economic policies that he's enacted, and are they in any way similar to what you described earlier, Victor, in the case of Argentina?
2: I think so, here's what both share. What do I mean by both? The political and economic populism. What connects them is the denigration of the rule of law, the denigration of experts, the attempts to get a win today at the expense of future costs. Um, Things like that cut across Political populism, which would be nativism, which would be scapegoating, which would be about creating a zero-sum cultural situation by agitating his supporters or base in a frenzy uh, over fears of diversity or cultural change or, I suppose, the so-called experts, the intellectuals, the Hollywood celebrities, people living in cities, uh, etc., cetera, Right. But on the economic front, what's interesting is that you see the violations of the rule of law when it comes to, let's say, politicizing the Justice Department, let's say, uh, enriching his own properties or his or uh, finding ways to connect his um, insiders or children to economic opportunities, promoting his own brand and his uh, hotels and the like. You see that and you know interference with the elections, the fact that he has not conceded the election even though the Electoral College has for all intents and purposes sealed the deal, electing uh, Joe Biden to the presidency, harassing the media, uh, threatening the post office because he feared voting by mail. Uh, we could go on and on. You know, there are others that are far better uh, experts at um, the violations of the rule of law on the political side and the institutional and legal side. But if you think about the economic side and you go beyond the fact that Trump has benefited his own properties and his family and his brand and just basic corruption or nepotism, There's what I would like to call the corruption of crony capitalism, and that borrows from the economic populist playbook. Some examples include the fact that in 2017, seems like ancient history, he jawbone carrier. This is a maker of like heaters and uh, air conditioning units um, to keep an inefficient plant open in Indianapolis uh, to save jobs, supposedly, uh, even though the jobs were gone anyway, and um, it wasn't really going to save all that many jobs. And in fact, the plant just was no longer viable, could no longer compete, right? Or uh, taking a very active role in steel and aluminum tariffs, telling Peter Navarro, let's say, or or other uh, economic advisors to hammer certain sectors, or or, or that would be um, Chinese uh, imports in steel and aluminum, or uh, to benefit certain sectors, that would be the Pennsylvania steel makers, right? Other things we can think about is persecuting the aerospace industry, the automobile industry, the uh, certain appliance makers with tariffs, uh, tariffs that supposedly benefited them. Uh, but that ended up actually hurting some of them at the end of it all. So all of these moves were, in a sense, ways of implementing economic populace. Higher cost to consumers, bad for some producers, bad for innovation, bad for the future. Constantly browbeating companies that had a foreign presence, like Harley-Davidson, for example, which makes some of its motorcycles overseas. I believe it's Southeast Asia, but I might be wrong at exactly where the manufacturing uh, plants are. What's worried me um, as well is antitrust and the fact that Trump has tried but failed because of the courts shooting it down, has tried to use the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice to persecute certain firms that he doesn't like, to send signals that he wants to open up antitrust investigations, let's say against Amazon, because he was worried that they were somehow um, overcharging the post office when in fact they were a lifeline for the post office delivering Amazon packages, right? Um, And it helps staunch losses on the balance sheet of the U.S. Post Office Uh, or other things he's done is gone after tech firms that he doesn't like because he claims they're censoring conservative views when there's no evidence that's the case. When Twitter fact checks somebody, for example, or when there's worries that conservative views are being censored, but in fact, it's just the basic monitoring and moderating function that these digital platforms use uh, across all of their users, right? And then there's the fact that the Department of Justice was against the merger of Time Warner and AT&T. This is a vertical merger uh, where AT&T was acquiring content, uh, it's up the supply chain and, and Time Warner is down the supply chain. Time Warner provides the content, right? But the the case was lost in federal court because it was total specious reasoning in terms of the economic logic of like why this would be bad for consumers. The judge threw it out, basically. I mean, it lost, but uh, the case was lost. But um, it was a humiliating defeat for the government, for the federal government, when it brought that suit. And um, that was over resentment against CNN more than any legal or economic justification when you really think about it, uh, why Trump tried to scuttle that merger. Finally, as you said before, Nick, the fact that uh, President Trump made several farmers beholden to his uh, indulgences in terms of giving them aid and giving them support when they found themselves retaliated against by China after we placed tariffs on Chinese imports across uh, different industries. And so that means American consumers paid for the tariffs twice. They played uh, for them in uh, uh, in the form of higher prices and higher debt and taxes, so reminiscent of what Beatrice said uh, with what happens when you put a price floor on something. Uh, you're paying deadweight losses. That means a bunch of deals that could have happened don't happen because the price is too high, therefore shutting people out of the market. And in addition, the tax, uh, which means that uh, you're paying for the subsidies themselves as taxpayers, right? And so, uh, add to that a reg uh, a record budget deficit under Trump, uh, and add to that the fact that he's been wanting to, or, or during his uh, time in office, weaken the independence of the central bank so that he can dictate the money supply in a way that helps his electoral fortunes. Not that there's massive inflation we need to worry about by any stretch, but just the fact that um, there has been tampering with the independence of the central bank is worrisome. If you think back to the Perón administration in Argentina and all of the populist experiments that followed him, including his own second wife, um, Isabella Perón, in the 1970s. So that is something to think about, and what, what that says about the future, I'm not sure, but it's something to keep an eye on because the precedent has been set that the rule of law, when it comes not only to politics, economics, when it comes to norms about um, our civility, when it comes to uh, the law, but when it comes to these very nitty-gritty issues about rewarding friends, hurting enemies, and using um, policy, not in an evidence-based way, not uh, according to the benefit of consumers or producers or even labor, but at the expense of uh, consumers and taxpayers. So that's something to keep an eye out, worrisome. Hopefully, um, President Joe Biden will curtail some of the uh, more obvious problems that we witnessed under Trump.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Victor. Um, These kind of economically populist policies have cast a very long shadow in, in Argentina. And then the question is, This was four years of Trump attempting to do some of the same things, potentially. How long will the shadow be now going forward? You alluded to it a little bit. Beatrice, what do you think? What are things that worry you in the U.S. context? And uh, what should we keep an eye out for?
1: I mean, one of the concerning things is that probably, like, even though Trump has lost the election, uh, and even though we will have a Biden presidency for the next four years, Trump is probably not going to disappear. He still got 47% of the vote. Um, which means that there are still a lot of people that are going to favor those types of policies. But I think the big puzzle is going to be what type of policies uh, President Biden is going to pursue. If he's going to go for like more moderate and centrist types of policy, which then could trigger a reaction um, from the far left. Um, right, We're going to have to see, or he could instead pursue more progressive, more radical left policies, in which case we could see a backlash from the right um, and potentially from the center. So I think like this is really an open question and it's really going to depend on what uh, Biden, what
2: type of presidency he's going to have what type of policies he's going to pursue.
0: Thank you so much, Beatrice. Thank you so much, Victor.
2: Thanks, Nick. This was really fun, Beatrice. Always a pleasure to chat with you about these things. I've learned a lot from the conversation, so this was really helpful, guys.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas and Victor. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we are curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.